Happy New Year, and welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by University of California Irvine School of Law professor Marissa Broderon, where I ask her, how fair is banking? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited to welcome our guest, who is a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, Marissa Baradoan. You are a writer. You're a professor of law. You are, which also I just have to get out of my system. That part in Legally Blonde when we meet the law professor, like, I just... You are like this, like young, fierce version. I'm like, Thanks. I object and I want to learn about law. <laughs> um, As a, that's a good movie. Yeah. It's such a good one. But you've off- authored two books that have both been published by Harvard University Press How the Other Half Banks and the Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. Um, mm-hmm. So you're the perfect person to help us learn about what is going on with. Mm-hmm race and the racial wealth gap. So I think, you know, I remember once as a kid asking my stepdad, what is like, what was the Gulf War about? And I was like five or six. And he was like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, most wars are about money. And then I, you know, Mm -hmm. when I think about it, it's like money, honey, it kind Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. It can't buy you happiness, but it sure can buy you like security and safety mm-hmm. and peace of mind. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And yeah. who gets money? Who gets to store it? Who doesn't? And I think it's something that a lot of people have, we've, we've talked about the gender, uh, wealth gap on this podcast mm-hmm. before. Um, I think I've really only started to learn about, you know, a racial wealth gap, you know, mm-hmm. very recently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think when we talk about wealth, um, in the United States, and we're talking about racial wealth gap, it is as exactly as you said, it's not just about well, how much money do you have in your bank account? It's also about what's your neighborhood like? What kind of resources do you have in your school? Is your neighborhood over policed? Are you, you know, more likely to go to jail? What, what about, you know, environmental hazards, right? What, where do they put the sort of bus depot in the city? So all of that stuff is entangled in the racial wealth gap. So in America, the racial wealth gap has everything to do with neighborhoods, right? Why is there a black part of town and a white part of town? Why is it that the white part of town has the nicer stores and the black part of town has like payday lenders and check cashers and dollar generals? Now, it's not just a black, uh, the black part of town that has those stores, but it is also that race and wealth have gone hand in hand for most, most of that history. And, and the way that that history connects to the present is that you have had these things, this, you know, uh, hundreds of years of segregation and Jim Crow and uh, race, explicitly racist exclusion from certain um, fields. And that has never been actually remedied. It kind of has continued on and the legacy has stayed um, to today. And so when you look at, you know, the racial wealth gap, which is about 10 to one right now. So white families on average, this is the average white family, have 10 times more wealth than the average black family. Uh, you put in Latinos and other sort of, uh, other groups in there. And it, it's, it's similar though, not as quite as bad as the white back, white black, um, racial wealth gap. You also have, um, you know, half to a third of black families that have zero to negative wealth. And that connects exactly to this legacy of, uh, uh, segregation and, 
and racism. And so it is, um, it is one of those things that is about wealth, but it's also about like an ecosystem of opportunities of, you know, exposures to violence and threats and, and other things that kind of come bundled up in that one figure. Which I think has been something that the United States has collectively, well, I mean, white America has collectively started to open their minds and eyes to. So first of all, when we think about, okay, so wealth, what, like, if I think about getting my hair done, I'm going to a salon. If I think about getting my wealth on, where am I going? I'm going to a bank. Like, I'm going to go to a bank, right? So what, like, what is a bank? Yeah. Like, in a classic sense, what's a bank? Yeah. Okay. So this is a a fun one. So bank is, because the earliest banks were Italian banks where you just basically lent people, you know, a little bit of money to go do, um, you know, a business or whatever. It was very rare. The money came with a lot of interest. You had, you know, bank vaults having like, you know, blocks of Parmesan cheese as collateral, you know, so it was very, very old school, but that's the earliest banks is like 14th century Italy. The modern banking system dates back to about 1600, 1700 in the UK and then the US. So I'll just kind of bring that up um, to today. Wait one second. Our modern banking, like Mm -hmm. our modern banking system in 2020 was established in the 17 and 1600s? Yeah. The same one? The, it, the sim, similar the similar idea, the concept, which is that it started actually with a big loan from the government to the market. And that money kind of circulates. It's like this big government debt. It's a Bank of England, you know, lends money to the crown and it flows in the market. And then that money, that's the net nation's currency. And then the nation kind of stands behind its currency and says, okay, this is Great Britain's currency. And in America too, right? Every, if you want to buy anything in America, it has to be the dollar, right? It can't, can't be, I mean, you could barter, you could use blockchain or whatever, but really everything is denominated in the US dollar. And basically that's the world's currency right now. And only banks have the charter, the sort of authority to kind of spread that money to give loans. And so when a bank gives a loan, they're actually creating money. And this is an important concept that, that I think is at the foundation of banking. It's not that banks take everyone's deposits and that's all the money they have. And then they make loans from those deposits. Banks hold a little bit of deposits and they lend out the rest, but they also can lend out more than the amount that they have in deposits because of their connection to uh, the government and the treasury. So the amount of money in bank loans is much more uh, often than than what you know people could save and, and put in. So so it is a bank loan that creates individual wealth. Your mortgage, your student loan, your business loan. So that's why it's important when you exclude communities from those loans, they have that block to building wealth. So a bank, okay. I don't, sometimes when I learn about stuff, I think to myself, like, am I the only one that has to say it like 16 times in a row to like really understand? But what you're saying is, is that your mortgage, your student Mm -hmm. loan, um, Mm -hmm. what was the other one you just said? Business loans. Business loans. Mm -hmm. So your ability to access, because it's like, I can't go pay like $5,000 
500,000 on the spot for a house or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe 30,000 to get the salon off the ground. Like you, Mm -hmm. you need to get a loan to make that happen. But once you do, theoretically, hopefully you're going to fix that house up really nice. You're going to be able to sell it for more. You should, you know, hopefully make a little money from it. Same with the salon. Hopefully from Mm -hmm. your student loan, like you're going to get a great job from your student loan and you're going to make that Mm -hmm. money back. So really like those are the, so when you say that a bank is really a wealth, it's creating money because those yes. when you you're going to go create money with that loan you got. Exactly. Exactly. You're trading. So you have an income. OK, so let's say I want to buy a mortgage. Like you said, nobody has five hundred thousand dollars unless you're like, you know, billionaires, kids, and in which case you don't need a mortgage. Just, you know, you have family wealth, the middle class, the, the vast majority of people don't have five hundred thousand dollars, let's say, sitting around to buy a house. But you do have an income. Right. So you say I get paid every month this amount of money. And I will promise you that's how you mortgage. That, that's how a mortgage works. They give you the bank gives you five hundred thousand dollars. You give them the, the deed to the house. And then you also promise them every month a payment of, you know, whatever that that uh, agreed upon thing is and then an interest rate and that's how banks make money is that you're you're trading it's like a it's a simple swap right you're trading your income um for their loan now there's a whole bunch of investors out there too who want that interest income right so that so if you want to invest you can invest in other people's mortgages through you know a mortgage backed security that's essentially what that was or if you remember that crisis that we had in those but but that's the basic concept but as a person i'm now gaining wealth because if i can get that mortgage on my home and that home can increase in value meanwhile i am you know putting my money into some an asset that is increasing my kids are going to school all of that stuff now the important point is that a lot of those mortgages are guaranteed by the federal government so essentially it's the federal government that that says if you can lend a certain type of loan we will guarantee it student loans it's all federal government okay a lot of business loans are also in 1934 the new deal kind of you know innovated this massive mortgage market student loans all of this stuff so basically the point is is that this idea that the bank is just a place where we go you know put like I'm just going to put this extra money in here and like a savings account and then they'll go do some other stuff. Like that's not really what banks are like for mm-hmm. the wider, mm-hmm. like for the entire, mm-hmm. I mean, like that's what I always thought they were like when I was a kid. Like I didn't know that you mm-hmm. could go to a bank yeah. and get like these loans and things. So it's not really just a place where we go store our money. It's actually a yes. place where e- with if you have the right information and the right tools and then they agree mm-hmm. to it and say, yes, it's actually a place where you can go Mm -hmm. make shit fuck tons of more money with the loans that you can get. Yes. Yes. It's leverage. Well, when rich people do it, it's leverage. When poor people do it, they say, oh, it's debt. You shouldn't do it. Right. So there is a double speak that we do, but yes, that's Mm. how you make money is you get out a loan. That's how banks make money. Banks don't necessarily want your deposits, especially right now, your deposits aren't doing them a lot of good, but the loans, that's where they make their money. And that's where you can, if you can get a good loan, on a good asset, that's how you can make lots of money. Got it. Okay, yes. So then yeah. I, yes. I think I understand this. So the 1934, right. honey, the new deal happens. So what yes. else happened? And like, can you just set the stage of the new deal mm-hmm. kind of briefly? Because it's like in the middle of America, where I'm from, people will literally say like, what does that have to do with now? That was like hundreds of years yeah. ago. Or like, there's a lot of that. And there's also this like yeah, yeah. misconception. I know we've said this on the podcast a lot before, but if you know, hear it again, there was segregation in all the states. I mean, the North invented segregation. 
it wasn't the South. I mean, housing segregation, right? Um, the South had Jim Crow, all the bad stuff there, clan, you know, but the North invented segregation when the Northern migration happened with Black um, Southerners going to the North. So, so the reason why, it's, first of all, it's not that long ago. People are still alive. Second of all, it is most wealth in this country is passed down generationally. So not just like a big fortune that you get in a will, but also that home is is most people's largest asset. And that comes down sequentially. And then if your dad or your grandfather got that GI Bill, got to have a middle class job, then you were set up in a way that those who didn't were not. So the background to the New Deal is that before the New Deal, I mean, for decades, there was all of these banking crashes, right? It's just really unstable. You would put your money in a bank and it could just be gone, right? Lots of banks failed. And, and there was, a, you know, there was, we were on the gold standard. It's a long, long, complicated history, but there would be these like crunches. There'd be a crisis like every other year where farmers, you know, who would have to borrow for their tractors or whatever. And then there'd be some shortage of gold and then the bank would retract the money and then everyone would suffer. And it was just not working. So there's there's a huge sense that we had to do something. We had to like the federal government had to step in and back up the money and back up the banking sector. And um, the Great Depression was obviously like the mother of all um, banking crises. And every, all the banks failed. People lost their you know uh, homes. They lost their farms. And you know I mean the stories of the gra- grapes of wrath and all, all of that stuff. So massive poverty. And then you have FDR coming in um, and completely revising. All of the systems. So there's the public works projects. We talk about the jobs, right? So you can go build a ditch and a railroad and we're going to pay you. The government's going to do that. But there's this whole banking um, uh, revision too. And so one of those things is the deposit insurance. So now if you put your money in a bank, you can rest easy. You don't have to go run a bank. If there's a problem, the, def- the, the FDIC is going to back up your funds. So that was huge, hugely important. I mean, I don't know if you remember in 2008, if you had a bank account and people, you know, these banks were failing and the FDIC said, don't, you don't need to go take out your money from a bank because the FDIC insurance fund has got you. And the important thing is this, if everyone goes, the bank doesn't keep all the deposits. It only keeps little bit. So if everyone runs a bank and takes out their money, that bank fails and every other, it's like a domino, right? And so a run is the worst thing that can happen to the banking sector. The whole thing works if everyone keeps their money in and keeps calm. But everyone individually is like, well, I want my money before, because the bank can only give, you know, the first five people in line their money and then everyone else loses. And so that was the big problem that FDIC insurance cured. The other side, the mortgage loans, the federal government basically set up a massive mortgage guarantees in, in the FHA. And the FHA says, look, if you lend a certain type of loan to a certain type of person, which I'll get to, we will guarantee it against default. So this is where every suburb in America that you see now, that's when it was created in 1934. It created all of the nation's roads. And some people say, look, we, we took a wrong turn in 1934 because we became a suburban, I mean, you know, the sprawl, all of these, you know, single family homes. We moved away from cities, but it also created a ton of wealth. Okay. So say what you will about suburban sprawl. I'm not a fan, but um, those people that got those loans got to pay less on a mortgage and their homes improved in value. They had, you know, parks and schools and, and the GI Bill, which they could go to school um, using. So that the, the way that the government sort of bureaucrats or whatever went around gauging risk around the country is that they went to certain neighborhoods and said, well, who lives in this neighborhood? And is it 
a risky neighborhood to lenders at night. So back in 1934, like a government agency literally dispatched out to the yeah. suburbs to say like, okay, we're feeling like it's 90% white, 10% black. Yes. We're feeling it's it's exactly right. And you can actually go, there's this really great website called Mapping Inequality and see the, the, the maps that they used and the, and the forms. And they went everywhere. There was this massive project, hundreds of surveyors. These are government like appraisers that went to every community across the country, cities, suburbs, everywhere. And then they looked and they said, okay, what, what kind of neighborhood is it? What kind of houses and what kind of people? So they would say things like, this is a, you know, a, a racially inharmonious community. What does that mean? There's, you know, brown people. Uh, this is, this neighborhood is filled with subversive races, you know, Mexicans, Japanese, Polish, right? And then if it was black, it was 100% risky, okay? So that race was like the number one indicator if you look at these forms and you can see it. Any community that, that was around then has one of these. And you, I've looked at all of them and, and race is incredibly prominent. So if you're in a black neighborhood, that government bureaucrat would come in and say, okay, we're gonna mark this neighborhood red and we're not gonna give FHA guarantees to lend into this neighborhood. And that's where the origin of the word redlining comes from, okay? So what does that mean about those redlining zones? That just meant that like, if you did live in one of those zones and you wanted to buy a house, you just couldn't get a loan? Yep, yeah, that's what it meant. You could get a private loan, but private loans were scarce, right? I mean, why would a mortgage uh, lender lend on a loan that they had to take all that risk for versus an FHA guaranteed loan where the government saying essentially, we will protect you against default. So 90 Nine, I could be, I think it's like 98 or 99 percent of mortgages from 1934 until the 1960s were all FHA insured. So there was no mortgage market outside of the government mortgage program, right? It's like you wouldn't have a deposit now in a bank that wasn't protected by FDIC insurance. Like once these things entered the market, they radically changed the market. So what it meant is you couldn't get a mortgage. You couldn't, you know, the jobs followed out into the suburbs, the cars, the installment, the credit, right? So people out in the suburbs had credit cards that you could revolve that was flexible, low interest rate. In the city, you were, uh, it, it, you know, installment credit, which is like a rent center, right? So it's everything about finance and credit. You were paying more and it was a more um, onerous, it was, it was not just more expensive, it was also... Um, just you're getting crappier goods. You were, you were, um, you know, if you defaulted on your loan to rent a center, they would send repo men and get, take all your stuff. Whereas in the suburbs, it was much more safe, right? You, your kids grew up in, you know, parks and schools and, and inside the, the city, uh, those parks weren't created. There was, you know, public housing and, and then after that, you know, the congestion and the smog and the environmental effects. So it really kind of, you can, you know, make a straight line uh, from that to now. And it wasn't just the New Deal. As I said, it was a whole, the New Deal was just cementing into law the segregation patterns that existed already for, for years before that. But what is white flight? Yeah, uh, white, white flight was when, basically when, you know, white people left the inner cities and uh, now they're they're coming back, right? But white flight was when, uh, you know, that 1934, post-1934, when a neighborhood flips and all it takes is five to 10% of families, the white people leave and then it becomes a black or brown community. And what that means also is that those homes decrease in value. So even if you can purchase a home in a community that's flipping and that's experiencing white flight, um, you're going to make less money. Now, again, I want to be clear that 
This is happening in geographies that are not just black and brown. So there are white communities that are experiencing that rapid decline, like Dayton, Ohio, and places that used to be, you know, manufacturing capitals that are now like the housing market is just broken. You can buy a house for like $5,000. You know, nothing's coming back and the jobs are leaving, right? So that, that was the white flight. So redlining lasts from 1934 well into 1968, but it's not just redlining, okay? It's also that each home now, each HOA, you know, the origin of HOAs were actually to keep black people and brown people out of the neighborhood, right? To keep those property values intact. The origin of what? HOA, like the Homeowners Associations. Yes. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So um, each home had a, like a racial covenant in the deed or mortgage contract. And you can look up these things too, but it basically said you cannot sell this home to anyone who's not of the Caucasian race. And it said that until 1960 what? 68, when the Supreme Court said, they won't enforce it. Yeah. So between yeah. 1934 and 1968, it literally said in these home deeds, you cannot sell this to anyone that's not white. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was basically informal. After that, uh, <laughs> the way zoning works, it's, 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 I'm, I'm not going to say it's changed that much because now you use different things like, you know, afford, affordable housing. A lot of communities fight against affordable housing and they don't have to let in like an apartment building or a dual residence. Right. Um, But by, even if we're ignoring the modern zoning, which has still caused harm by 1968. So this is people's parents, right? This is, you know, people's grandparents, parents, uh, you either grew up in the suburbs, had those schools, had the jobs, or you were kind of redlined into this, you know, a black neighborhood where, (laughs) The buses didn't run properly. There was now we've got environmental toxins. We're running the roads, right? Uh, as we're building roads and bus depots, we're running them through these neighborhoods. Uh, it's it's a it's that legacy of that segregation that still remains intact. So if you look at there's a racial map across the country, and and put those red line maps on top of it. So 1934 red line maps to today where people live, it it has not changed. At all. So where George Floyd is murdered, you know, I, I actually looked at the maps and I followed it to today. And that neighborhood has stayed a black neighborhood. It's still an impoverished neighborhood. It is a food desert. It is a banking desert. It is where you find, you know, bodegas. And it's also where uh, police have a higher, uh, you know, a likelihood of confronting people like George Floyd and where those deaths and those um, overcriminalization of drug crimes occur. So, so it's not that long ago. Um, it's not this long forgotten history. It very much affects us to this day. And I mean, in George Floyd's case, it was a counterfeit $20 bill. I mean like that in and of itself, like a shoplifting, a counterfeit, anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a symptom of poverty. Mm-hmm. And so right. why are we arresting folks for mm-hmm. crimes of poverty, which leads me to the question of what mm-hmm. does, I mean, I've heard of food desert before. I've never heard the term banking desert, but it's like, mm-hmm. if, you know, if, if what we're operating on is that a bank is kind of this like magical place where like the American dream can come true, where you can, you know, go make your dreams come true and get like mm-hmm. the money making mm-hmm. machine mm-hmm. to like theoretically like shoot your shot and make it work. If there are no banks in your redlined community, is mm-hmm. it that, 
you know, it's not that folks are lazy. It's not that folks don't want to. It's that like there's literal no like there's no banks in those areas. There's no banks. And there there weren't loans. There wasn't the opportunity. It is not. I don't. You can either believe in every single person in a single community making bad decisions over time, or maybe it's the system and the environment. That That is the most obvious, simple explanation and the one that's supported by all the data. So it's not just that the bank wasn't there to give you a mortgage loan or a student loan. It's also that instead of the bank, you got a payday lender and a check casher. Banks are regulated, so their interest that they can charge you on a mortgage is like four, five, six percent. If you want to go get five hundred dollars to fix your car, and you're in a you know banking desert, if you're in a formerly red line area, and you want to go get five hundred dollars, you're paying three hundred to five hundred percent APR. So to take out five hundred dollars, you end up paying about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. Okay. That's not to mention civil fines. Anytime you have a fee, you have to show up in court. They put in, you know, hundreds, $500. Most of the criminal violations in this country end up being for unpaid fines and fees. You can actually go to prison and get criminal sanctions now for not paying fines and fees. So it's not just, oh, well, we don't have a bank, so we can't get rich. It's also that we're now getting, you know, targeted by the worst kinds of lenders in these communities that have basically filled the void where banks have left. And the, and the, and the, and the thing that gets to me, it's not just that banks have, it, as I said earlier, the banks are supported by the federal government. So this is very much an issue of public policy. It is, if we get, we're supporting the banks on so many different levels, we're guaranteeing the loans. We as America, we as taxpayers, we guarantee the mortgages. We, you know, the FDIC guarantees the deposits. The Federal Reserve pumps million billions and trillions of dollars into the banking sector and those banks aren't serving certain communities. And so I think that's a problem of democracy. It's not just oh banks are choosing not to do this. This is a, a flaw in our collective uh democratic system. So when I mean I wrote down when you're saying that so who gets rich when we have these payday lending places like these check into cash type places to get a loan and they're allowed to charge you 30 40 50% like these crazy outrageous numbers it would be illegal for a bank to do so but they've come in and filled the void and then we talk about the fact that you can go to prison for not paying fines which that also enriches people by putting people in prison beds there's for profit prisons all over this country so in both of those cases someone's getting rich so where does a lot of the where does that money go to? Who are these people who are getting rich off of these predatory payday loans and imprisoning people? The same people who always get rich. I mean, truly, truly. I mean, it's it's not a conspiracy because it's in broad daylight, right? It's not that it, you know. It's just that the way that these you know corporations work is that they're just going to go where it's most profitable, and so. All the payday lenders, a lot of the check cashers are under a few big conglomerates, right? So, you know, like Carlos Slim, like the richest man in, you know, uh, America, Mexico owns a bunch of check cashers. There's just, you know, payday lenders are financed by some of the same Wall Street banks, uh, private prisons or public prisons, right? So we, we don't, I don't need to distinguish public to private prisons. There's monopolies that sell prisoners phone calls and like laundry detergent. So they're not allowed to buy from anyone but this one supplier. That's why the shirts are so expensive. I actually have a close friend who is incarcerated and it's like, 
to buy t-shirts, to buy anything. It's like insanely expensive to call anyone. It's insanely expensive. It's yeah. I mean, it's, yes. it's like, and it's profits. Yeah, it's 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 not competition. It's a it's a total monopoly of the system. And they lobby. They lobby against. So the payday lenders in California lobbied against the minimum wage bill. Okay, which didn't seem to have anything to do with payday lenders, but they figured out. Look, if we pay people workers more, they're going to pay us off more. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll have less money. Right. So so they're politically pretty powerful. And uh, they can get the things that they want. And the, and the banks are, you know, are not competing in this area. So, so it's a real, like, dual system. It's, you know, the system of finance for wealthy people and then one for uh, poor black and brown communities. And white rural communities, too, by the way. It is, it is now a cross-racial problem of banking deserts. There's a whole bunch of banking deserts in the rural southwest, in the midwest, in the southeast, that's one thing that I, I say often here that I learned from Ashley Marie Preston is she says that like white supremacy will eat its own young. Yes, <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah. The important part is, is that the way that wealth, banking, violence, quality of life, all of these things are inextricably linked. I wanted to ask earlier and some of, you know, my research and in, in looking into your writings and stuff, we talk about this idea of being like underbanked and a community yeah. being underbanked. Can you tell us yeah. what that is? Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying on this is underbanked is someone who maybe has a bank. An unbanked is someone who doesn't have a bank account and is relying primarily on checking accounts or payday lending. Um, an underbanked person is someone who maybe has a bank account, but they're using the other alternative services more often. So, you know, prepaid debit cards. Uh, payday lending, check cashing. And the reason they're doing that is because it's actually a rational choice, right? Banks will off, will um, send overdraft fees. I don't know if you've ever had not enough money in a bank to, to make it. Hell right? yes. <laughs> okay. I've like, I've like, I've gone over, I've gone overdrawn like yeah. four overdraft fees. Yes. And you know how, how, in, like, that's like $40, $50 sometimes. Every and then they time. can stack them. Yes. And so, you know, if you don't have enough money to, to get those minimums, and sometimes it's like $1,500, $2,000 of like a, a buffer that you need to have. If one check clears faster than you've made a right. check, then you're, you know, you're screwed. And so, and those fees can come fast, right? And the bank can choose, you know, when to issue those fees. And so you're saying, well, you know, I'm going to have my bank account for this money, but then when I go use my checks, I'm going to use a check casher or a payday lender. And because they at least say, you know, we'll cash your $100 check and we'll take $10, which is a lot of money, right? And a bank will do it for free, but it's like, you don't know about the overdraft fees and the banks, it takes like days to clear. And if you need to pay rent on a Friday, you get paid on a Friday, you need that money on a Friday, right? So, so that, that, that is a big block um, that the banking system just isn't meeting the needs of those people. So I think that's, that's one thing, but the others are just that you don't, you don't trust them. They're not in your neighborhood. So that's what we talk about. When we talk about un underbanked. I mean, when I think about overdrafts and I mean, overdrafts were a constant part of my life until yeah. like 2017. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. like it wasn't until like mm -hmm. we I in like years and years and years of like working mm -hmm. so hard to like, but that hasn't, I mean, that was because of like luck family, mm -hmm. like all mm -hmm. sorts of stuff and yeah. also like hard work, but also like a lot of luck and a lot of like other things, but overdraft. Yeah. I mean, I think knowing what I know now about retirement funds and how important they are and how much money I didn't have in my twenties off of overdrafts alone, I bet yeah. I could have had like the fattest fucking yeah. IRA ever. Yeah. Like, yeah. I bet you I easily paid 
like between five and $10,000 of overdraft fees, like in my teens and twenties. Cause I was just, yeah. I mean, I was overdrafting yeah. every, every week, multiple and, times. And the majority of, so banks make a ton of money off overdraft fees and only Poor people pay overdraft fees. So that's one of the tricks of banking is that it is always the same slice of customers. It's the low income people who end up subsidizing. So it's been a while since I've paid an overdraft fee. There was a time, but now, you know, I get all of the offers from the banks. If I, if anything happens, I screw something up. They will like comp me, whatever, right? Because I have, you know, middle-class job and enough money to like, you know, feed them into the, uh, into the deposit, uh, 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 you know, part of the bank. But, but those fees then subsidize the perks to the rest of us. So if you have a credit card with, you know, bonus miles or whatever, you know, I have a Delta card and it's the people who, who have to roll over their money to pay that interest that subsidizes the top. And it's the people who pay overdraft fees at the bottom who subsidize all the free banking perks. So it's like reverse, right, benefits. It should be the other way around. But if you look across the system, there's so many ways where poor people pay more proportionally in taxes than does the top. Like way more of their income goes into taxes. (laughs) Basically, what I hear you saying is, is that the system that we have, it enables the system is punching down to keep yeah. the people that are up, up, and it keeps yeah. the people that are down, down. And in order for you to have upward economic mobility, you have to like be working so hard at the right place at the right time, plus a little bit of luck, plus some privilege or social capital or something yeah. to like. And it's like the chance to thread that needle of, a, of obtaining mm-hmm. upward mobility mm-hmm. is it seems like it's getting like smaller yeah. and like harder yeah. for it to happen. I mean, it's, it's even like, I mean, at the, at that, at that level of wealth, I mean, Jeff Bezos's money makes more money every day than like half of the population make that day. You know, like his money is making himself more money than he could ever spend. So it's kind of abstract at one point, right? Like it's like, what, do, what is money if someone has almost a trillion dollars, right? So Jeff fucking Bezos doesn't pay 40% because he's so, yeah. Because he's got so many apartment buildings. Well, he doesn't take an income. He doesn't take an income. It's all capital gains. It's real estate. I mean, it's like, this is rich people loopholes, right? You offshore stuff. You um, put it in capital gains. Capital gains are not taxed like income. Real what is this tax- offshore shit people keep fucking talking about? What does it mean? <laughs> I had it! I know. I know. Listen, we have... There's, there's like disappearing money worldwide. If you total how much people make and are worth and the taxes that each country gets paid, there's like trillions of dollars missing. And where it is, is Cayman Islands. It's in Ireland. It's in Switzerland. So if you're rich enough, you actually can put your money somewhere where the U.S. tax authorities can't get to it. And honestly, a lot of this stuff is perfectly legal. Private equity funds. They pay a two and 20 structure. So you only pay a tiny little bit of tax because you're getting all of your income as not income. You're getting a slice. So if you manage like a billion dollar portfolio, you're getting like a a chunk of that. And that's not taxed like income. That's taxed like capital gains, which is way lower. It's like barely capital gains was like 50% or something. Mm -mm. No, no, no. It's like, it's way less. Yeah. There's loopholes, right? That's what private... So how do people that make like, like, how do, how can we all just say it was capital gains? We're not allowed to because you yeah. have to make like a quadrillion dollars first to say yeah. it's capital gains. Basically. 
I hate that story. (laughs) I I hate it too. (laughs) So I feel like I, I think I understand more about economy, more about the banking system, but let's go back to 1865. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the end Mm -hmm. of the civil war. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot, we've talked about some of that history on the podcast. We had this incredible lecture from the university of Texas at Austin, teach us about some of that reconstruction history. It's, but it was more like overall, it's kind of like what happened to some of those like Confederate like generals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we got to talk enough a lot about like, you know, the financing and how mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. got from even like how did things go from like post Civil War to like that 1934 period? Right. Like, because isn't yeah. I feel like that's probably important to talk about in order for us to understand like a racial wealth gap of what we're going through now. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one important thing I'll say about Reconstruction Uh, finance wise is that so you have hundreds of years of enslavement right so white slave owners and by the way the northern industrialists and the people over in great britain trading on the cotton gains did you listen to the 1619 project yes i was i helped form it i helped yeah i wrote some things oh my god devoured devoured i did not know and you are just full of hidden surprises the transition team this this is major okay so wait so basically Okay, I okay, I don't want to explain it because I'm pretty sure it's wrong, but you were explaining earlier that like, you know, people can invest in the mortgage-backed things now. Like maybe you don't have a ho- a yeah. house or maybe you yeah. do, but you can invest in the mortgage industry yeah. like now. Yes. Like you can still yeah. do that. But yeah. back in slavery, people yeah. in England and in the north, like mm-hmm. people could do explain it to me, please. Okay, so um uh, enslaved people weren't just the labor, you know, under horrendous conditions of creating cotton, they were also the capital upon which slave owners, uh, the enslavers, um, used that collateral as leverage to get more loans and more wealth. And this was a worldwide trade. So the cotton exports went to the north to feed that industrial, uh, uh, sort of the factories up north. And then they went east, you know, to, to Liverpool and to London. And there was this whole market of trades, not just in the cotton like products, but also in, you know, investing in factories and, and speculating on bonds and credit. You know, that's most of the money, usually in a financial system is sophisticated. Second order money, right? It's not just, I'm going to buy this thing and I'm going to pay you. That's like what average people do, but like sophisticated, wealthy people, you know, do insurance on cotton, right? They do banking. They do the, 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 the derivatives trading. And so, um, enslaved peoples were the basis of the currency of that Southern system. And so one of the things that happened and didn't happen in the Civil War, right? So the thing that happened is, is emancipation. The thing that didn't happen was ju- justice and freedom. Okay, so everyone, Frederick Douglass, you know, Abraham Lincoln, Union generals said, look, if you are going to emancipate uh, you know, these enslaved peoples who had been working on the land for hundreds of years, right? And by the way, the treasonous Southerners who have just you know, staged a rebellion against the Union, um, you need to take that land and div- divide it up and give it to uh, the freedmen. And that did not happen because the South and the British merchants and the northern merchants said, look, we need our cotton at this price. And what happened if, you know, in Haiti, when they had uh, emancipation is the, the freed slaves refused to grow sugar because they, it was a, you know, debt crop. And when you have your own 
land, you're going to grow things to feed your family. And so they, the, the worry was that in America, that that would happen as well. And the cotton prices, when less people are growing cotton, the price of cotton skyrockets, which would halt that massive cotton industry. And so then there was this pressure on the South. It wasn't just the Southern sort of racists and Democrats. It certainly was them, but it was also the Northern Republicans and the, the, the British merchants who said, we need uh, this cotton produced the same way it was before. And so essentially you had a recreation of that plantation economy through sharecropping. A lot of freed men and women went back to work on the plantations that they were just emancipated from, often with the same master, but now it was a debt arrangement. And that arrangement with, you know, the Jim Crow and all that stuff lasts until the 1930s, 1920s. Uh, sharecropping works and you borrow all your seeds, you're, you're on borrowed land, you don't have the ability to grow, um, you know, your own goods for your family. And then you owe at the end of the season to, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, merchant who lent it to you. It's often, you know, the accounting is done by that person. And it was, it was a, a really exploitative, um, uh, system. You know, on top of that, you had a few black communities that, you know, we're able to get out of that system. So Tulsa is one, Wilmington, Delaware, where there was oil or something like that. And when uh, black men and women got property, there was often uh, violent mobs, right? So for many, many decades post reconstruction, um, because uh, the, you know, black population in the South were completely disenfranchised and essentially left out of any of the governance of the South, um, there was a lot of vigilante violence, um, paramilitary, you know, clan, domestic terrorism, and uh, not just like you're actually legally blocked from this, but you're also threatened by that violence. If you try to own property, if you try to, you know, build something, there might be a mob, you know, and then you won't get justice, right? There won't be due process. So that's part of so the history as well. <laughs> so it's almost like, because in the 1619 project, we hear in that, I think it's the second episode, they're talking about the banking crashes of like eight, the 1820s. And, and it's, so it's almost like once the, once the enslaved peoples were free and emancipated, it was like the cotton industry was almost like too big to fail. So they were like, mm -hmm. oh, we can't, well, like I say that in air quotes, like, mm -hmm. but it was like, oh, well, we can't this can't go up now because all these people are relying on it. So if we mm -hmm. give you your 40 acres and a mule or whatever, like, mm -hmm. well, how or yeah. what are all these people are going to exactly. do? So we just can't yeah. have that. It's going to be too it's, expensive. Yeah. It's power. It's about power. It's going to be too big to fail. It's just who, who has power. And the person that has power controls the levers of lawmaking. So law isn't this abstract concept that we kind of get into. It's, you know, the carried interest loophole that we were just talking about on private equity. Like someone created that loophole in the tax code. And for us to fix it, we have to, you know, go up against the private equity firms. But who are the senators and Congress people hearing from more often? Me and you who are trying to have kids and have jobs and don't have the time to lobby them or, you know, a select group of lobbyists who are like, you know, we will give you campaign donations. Just don't touch the things that benefit us. And, and that and that's not as cynical as it sounds like, you know, they need votes. They need to stay in power. And so Power ends up recreating its own power unless there is, you know, wide scale sort of social movements. And, and, and the Civil War was won, but it w was incomplete. 
So can we talk a little bit more about the some of the black owned and operated banks of the 1900s and and the Freedmen's Bank? I know you you had mentioned mm-hmm. it, but what were some of those, you know, pre 1930 like post Civil War, but pre 1930s? Like, do do any of those banks still exist? Did any of those, do we know about any of those people? Like, yeah. do we see that in contemporary America? Yeah, yeah. So some of those banks still exist. Like M- um, Mechanics and Farmers Bank was created in 1907. I think that's still around in North um, Carolina. There's a couple other ones. Maggie Walker is someone that I highlight in the book because she's the first woman of any race to own a bank. Um, she's a banker in Richmond, Virginia. She's phenomenally just brilliant and successful. Her bank survives the Great Depression. It was actually during 2008, the financial crash, that her bank goes down. She had passed long before that. But, um, you know, she she's, she ends up, like, you know, through the Great Depression, merging a couple other Black-owned banks into hers and, and saving them. Um, but these banks struggled a lot, right? Because it was they were created because of segregation and Jim Crow and violence. And so they were really filling a niche, right? Because you have massive exclusions and, and racism, you create your own sector, your own bank, your own insurance fund, your own school. And that is, uh, you know, how you, uh, you know, do the things that you need to do in, in, the, in, the, in the sort of maw of, of this violence. So, I didn't mean to say yes. I'm just like so fascinated by you because I I just, I, that was more of saying yes in response to you, not what we're talking about. You're just so fascinating. So, what does what we're learning about this? You mentioned just earlier, you know, the trust that trusting Mm -hmm. in a bank is so important. And one thing I hear you saying is that as black communities were coming into banking power and were coming into wealth, it was like violently ripped away. I think a lot of people know about the Tulsa massacre of 1921, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And just like the general threat of violence in the American South. I don't pretend to know what that would be like to be a black person going through that, but I definitely believe that that exists and existed Mm -hmm. probably still does in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Um, But what does that history say about the importance of trust in in banking or and the relationship between capital and power in the United States? Yeah, yeah. So that violence, I mean, the way you try to describe it is like, you know, I have never been, and this is a privilege that I think some of us share, I've never been beaten up. I've never been punched. I've never been physically um, threatened my body. Now, I grew up in, you know, a war. And so there were, you know, bombs and things like that. And so that I understand what that violence feels like. Um, But I think that 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 threat of that violence hanging over you, like bodily violence, the way I just don't think we can quite capture the trauma of what it might have been like to live through not just Tulsa, but the the like personal um, violence and terrorism that was the Klan and Jim Crow, and and that how you might feel if you felt like your family members, your children, you your body was constantly under threat, and and I think we can kind of relate this to police violence now. Is you know I don't know what it's like to walk. And walk by and, and have, have that image of George Floyd or Eric Garner or Michael Brown in my head, like this could happen to me or my kid, you know? And, and so I think that it's, it's one of those things where we, we all could stand to have much more radical empathy. I mean, you probably understand things about, you know, homophobia that I will never understand. Like, what is it like to walk into a room and, and understand that this violence, this threat of, 
you you yourself are are presenting a threat to somebody whose masculinity is going to be triggered and they're going to lash out and do something to your body. And, and so I think that systematic violence and vulnerability to violence is a defining feature of, of race and, 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 and gender oppression that I think we have kind of yet to understand fully in like the psychological sense. Like what does that do to your DNA, to your, just like the, the way you breathe, the way we, we know that your body is connected to your traumas, right? And so how does that trauma live um, within? And so I, I don't mean to get, you know, airy-fairy, but I think it's it's connected. I mean, I, I I focus on businesses and I focus on banks, but sometimes these bankers, like one of the bankers that I profiled in my book had his house bombed 10 times and he kept moving back in because he was like, I have a right, I'm an American and I can live anywhere I want. And I just like, imagine for a second, like, can you imagine like you're, you know, just fearing at night that your house was going to be bombed? I mean, it's just, anyway, it, I, I think that we, we need to reckon with with that as a as a force of terrorism um, that some of us understand to be this foreign force, but that was very much part of a, a American life for some people. Well, when we think about like the physiology of our brain and like the whole thing, mm-hmm. if you you know fold your thumb into your palm and then close your fingers around your thumb, and really like there's like two of those is probably like, the size of your brain, but it's like where your thumbnail is is like your amygdala, which is like your threat mm-hmm. perceptor, and if you're constantly that does do something to us, and I think that it's mm-hmm. not airy fairy to link mm-hmm. your ability to um to have a- upward economic mobility and to have safety and stability with like how much in threat you mm-hmm. feel. Uh, Cause yeah. it's really hard to make rational decisions when you are constantly looking for where the other shoe is going to drop. And then what's this idea of, well, and then it's like, we per- like progress. And then we come up to Nixon who was like, I mean, this is someone who we have on tape saying like, how can we make, you know, marijuana a schedule one offense? Like, how can we imprison more black people yeah. and more hippies? Because they're the ones who vote against me. I mean, it's literally something, you know, it's on tape. Like, it's yep. that yep. just still yep. blows my mind that like people like, know. you know, family members and folks like we can have that on tape. And then people will be like, oh, yeah, racism and systematic racism. It's not it's just that really <sighs> to me is like the like. But but at the same time, Nixon yeah. was someone who like supported the idea of black banking. He was someone who kind mm-hmm, of started mm-hmm. the EPA, I think. Yeah, so yeah. it's, but then Iron Brockovich, I'm sure would say like, well, fuck the EPA. It's like not really protecting yes. anybody. Like that's really right. just like a bureaucracy. It's like meant to like, you know, keep how fucked up people are actually like under the, under wraps. Like they're not really protecting yeah. us. On Nixon, I think he, he, we don't give him enough credit for creating like the modern American, right? And left like he Nixon did more, I think, damage to um, racial progress than we actually give him credit for um, because of black capitalism part the, the his support of black banking was was a cynical move. It wasn't, oh, you know, these are these great banks. It was I'm not going to push on civil rights. I'm not going to integrate. Right. We're not going to do justice, but we'll just put these deposits in these black owned banks and we'll try to convince businesses to invest in inner city. So it was not at all um, helpful uh, to the community. And by the way, it came with, you know, it's like hardcore capitalism that was like partnered with law and order, right? So we're putting people in prison, but also we're like libertarian, free market, but, you know, hardcore state violence and state policing um, on, on crimes that were, you know, essentially minor drug crimes. So 
it wasn't a helpful thing. And it actually kind of was like really more just like lip service to like make other white powerful people feel like less guilty about the very like hurt, like the very obvious racial injustice. So then it was just kind of like a narrative to be like, but we are doing like this thing, but it really Mm -hmm. wasn't very effective. Yes, exactly. So got it. And so then you've been named a part of the Biden Harris transition team, which congratulations. (laughs) What's that been like? And and as someone who isn't, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, to take like a line out of Hamilton's book, it's like, you are going to be in the room where it's happening. (laughs) So how could we get more progressive? How could we get a banking system that helps to, like punch up instead of punch down so that we could actually make these things more realistic for folks. Yeah. Yeah. So I can speak as myself. I mean, the work on the transition, what we do as teams is we basically are the bridge between the last administration and the new administration. Some of us may go in, some of us may not. Um, it is, you know, it's not a paid job. You that you get called and you do it. And you, what, 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 I, I'm on two transition teams. I'm on the Treasury team and I'm on the Fed slash banking agency teams. And we've just been inside, you know, it's COVID, so we're, um, you know, remote. But we we kind of study the agency and what are all the rules. I mean, every one of these agencies has massive rulemaking and lots of personnel. And so we study the agency and we create you know, maps and, and, uh, uh, sort of helpful guides for the, the people that will be coming in. Um, I, I think, and then as a, as a person, um, who writes about this stuff and cares about this stuff, I think we could do a lot here, um, treasury and the banking agencies to make things more equitable. I think just, you know, um, rolling back some, some of the big bank, you know, deregulation. I think the, the, the more power, you know, few big banks have over the entire market, the more risk that they, they, they present to all of us. Um, so I think reining those in, really enforcing the laws we have on the books is really important. I mean, there's a lot of, like we talked about earlier, petty crimes that people go to prison for. There's a whole bunch of like tax crimes and, you know, um, uh, fraud and, and, you know, those things need to be like pursued vigorously. Um, and really just, you know, um, making sure that this, the banking system we have doesn't just serve the banks, but serves the people. That's what it's for. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of policy things I've, uh, written about and I, I hope that we can get regulators into these, um, agencies that, that, have experiences like you just mentioned, like have had an overdraft fee, right? And that's really important. That's one reason representation matters, not just, you know, racial and gender. I think those are really important, but also like someone who's been a real person and lived a a life that understands what, you know, being on the margin feels like. So this will be my last question. It's one that we didn't entirely prep for, um, but I just, I feel like you'll be good to answer it. So for like, For anyone listening to this, what would you say to like young people or anyone who just like hasn't really gotten it together? Obviously, we are in a system where unless you weren't like born into extreme wealth, like we are in a system that makes it harder and makes it harder to succeed. Um, So what would you say to people that want to have more stability and more peace of mind um, that maybe are in a banking desert (laughs) that are not necessarily in a place to encounter economic mobility, upward mobility, what can people do? Like any Susie Orman advice? Like No, any, like- I don't do Susie. I mean, here's the thing. Look, like the best financial decision you can make is to have rich parents, right? And if you don't, um, don't, don't keep shame on an already messed up system. I have students who have tons of student loans 
who feel shame and bad. Like, look at the generational split. Like, we, my generation, I'm 42, we did not have, we didn't have to get student loans. College was cheaper then. We just had a different system. And so we didn't go around being like, oh, like, I'm so awesome for not having student loans. Every student of mine has student loans because that's the system that they have. So there's no point in saying, I am ashamed of myself for not being able to like make my monthly payments and all of this stuff or, or any of the, 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 like they, 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 this generation has had two different financial crises, right? I had a job before the 2008, I was like done with law school before the world collapsed. Right. And, and, and people who were caught in the middle of that one. And then this COVID recession, um, it doesn't make sense for us to say, oh, well, if you just had saved more money or if you just had bought less lattes and magazines, like screw that. Like you don't say you don't become rich by saving your money. Now you should save your money for sure. Right. But um, don't have shame around that stuff. I, 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 I think, you know, um, make the decisions that you can, you know, join political movements that push for things like, you know, canceling student debt and, and making things fair. Um, and, you know, like try to get like a job with health insurance if you can. Uh, and in the meantime, like we should work on everyone just getting health insurance because that's what's fair. Yes. Shame-free zone. I love exactly. the feedback of a shame-free zone, kind of realizing where we are in this. And then also realizing that we do need to make systematic change in order for us to even be on a playing field that's even like close to yeah. an equitable playing field. I think that, that you're exactly right. And I love that that you, you know, you do the personal transformation, but you also do politics. And I think I, I, you know, I commend, that's why I wanted to come here because I commend someone with your platform who goes out and is like, look, there's just a right decision here. Like you, like there's, there's good politics and there's bad politics and you can't be neutral at times like this, right? You can't just be like, oh, well, whatever, you know, um, and I'm not saying shame, but like there's, you know, form coalitions, right? Join up with people who are doing good work, you know, um, and, and that's what you've done. And I really, really appreciate that. And also work on your personal feel good transition, like things, you know, like um, we have to treat ourselves well in order to not have that shame, right? And I think so that's something that you've done really brilliantly. So uh, thank you for being a, a role model and a light. Oh, thank you for being a role model and Thanks. a light. And we're going to be <laughs> shouting you out on this episode. And um, people need to follow you. you wherever they can follow you, myself included. Thank Are you on Twitter? You. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm going to be all Twitter. up on your Twitter after Yay. this. So I'm super excited. Awesome. But thank you so much. And thank we just you. appreciate your time and your expertise and everything that you do. And thanks for coming on Getting Curious. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was University of California, Irvine School of Law professor, Marissa Broderon. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to, honeys, we love it. We're doing so much over there at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson and our transcriptionist is Cassie Jerkins. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson.